I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning as we continue our exposition of this epistle. And we are in the midst of a section that Paul began back in chapter 8. And we'll continue to the first verse of chapter 11 where he's discussing meat sacrificed to idols. And within that discussion, the theme of Christian liberties. The interesting thing about expository preaching, you know, it, it, it adds difficulties and it also makes things a little bit more simple. Difficulties in the sense that when you come to a text like 1 Corinthians 9, and we'll be looking at verses 15 through 18 today, you can't preach those independently of the broader context. You have to figure out how these verses fit within the broader theme of the book. And expository preaching causes you to look back at the preceding texts and look back at the text to come and to formulate a sermon, an expositional sermon that is kind of like a puzzle piece with jagged ends on both both sides, jigsaw ends on both sides that fit into that puzzle. But the blessing to that is that the context is well-defined for you. Much of the groundwork is already laid and you're not beginning a new endeavor, but you're continuing an ongoing conversation as we march through 1 Corinthians. So again, I want to urge you to consider these verses with me in light of the broader theme of the book. And if you ever struggle to do so, and perhaps you've missed a a Sunday or two, you can always go on our sermon audio and catch up on that context of this this book. Um, And that is how God feeds us, uh, through His Word. We want to preach it as we read it, verse by verse and line by line, as God speaks to us through the whole of the scriptures. So let me read for you 1 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 15. These are the words of God. But I have used none of these things. Neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me, for it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. What is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, but I abuse not my power in the gospel." As Paul unpacks the issue of Christian liberty and the limits thereof, and as he, in chapter 9, uses himself as an example of his central thesis, he simultaneously unveils a cardinal truth pertaining to our service for the Lord. It is a truth that will revolutionize the way you live the Christian life. It is a truth that will save you from bondage and drudgery. It is a truth that will keep you from viewing your Christian duties as burdensome obligations and instead cause you to see them as blessed privileges. It is a truth that will save you from the ditch of duty and grant you joy as you live for Jesus Christ. Such a glorious truth is this. As a Christian, your reward is is not primarily found in something you receive from serving, but rather the reward for your service is chiefly contained in the service itself. 
as a Christian, your reward is not primarily found in something you receive from serving. But rather, the reward for your service is chiefly contained in the service itself. Let me illustrate this for you. For those of you in the secular workforce, you invest 40 hours a week, Monday through Friday, as an employee of the company. And though you may genuinely enjoy your job, your reward is chiefly contained in Friday's paycheck. That's where your your chief reward is. And if you didn't get that chief reward, you wouldn't keep doing the job. You'd go find another one where you did get that reward. But for for the Christian, you receive your ultimate reward in the blessed privilege that it is to serve God. Not in something that God might give you for serving Him. This should shape the way that we view our Christian responsibilities and the service that we are called to do. Going to church is not something we have to do. It's something we get to do. Reading our Bibles is not a trifle, it's a treasure. The reward for reading your Bible is not merely that you might attain some knowledge or attain some information, but it's the the joy of being able to spend time with God and His Word. The reward is contained in the activity. Sharing the gospel is not an encumbrance, it's an enjoyment. Evangelism and witnessing is not something that God painstakingly begs of you to do. It's something He gives you the opportunity to do. You have the privilege of going out into the world and sharing the gospel. This truth of the blessedness of Christian service must couch our view of Christian liberties. This truth leads us to gladly forego certain rights because we desire to be profitable servants more than we desire to indulge in our liberties. That's what Paul is talking about here in chapter 9. This truth is foundational to his argument. He forgoes his right to financial compensation from the Corinthians because he realizes that by so doing, he can avoid certain hindrances, serve more freely, and bring more glory to God. And that matters more to him than receiving a paycheck. You understand what Paul is saying here? I have the right to a paycheck. I have the right to financial compensation. But... I would rather give up my right if by so doing I can be a better servant. Because my reward is not found in the paycheck. It's found in the service. Even later in the chapter, Paul will talk about running so as to obtain a prize. He'll command you to run so that you might obtain a prize. But the reward that he has in view, that for which he lives, is not monetary or personal gain. The reward that Paul is striving to obtain is a life lived, sold out, uncompromisingly in service to the Most High God. We share in this yearning to stand before God on the last day and to say of ourselves, I counted all things lost and I gladly relinquished my Christian liberties that I might obtain the precious reward of a life spent in service to my King. Chapter 9 can be divided into two sections. Verses 1 through 14, we have Paul's right. And we saw there, Paul painstakingly proved the seven-tiered bullet point defense of his right to receive financial remuneration from the Corinthians. And I pointed out to you that 
If we don't preach that in context, you might think that the whole point of what Paul is doing there is just to prove that churches should pay their pastors. And he does prove that, uh, but moreover, he's proving that he has this right. But verses 15 through 27, we see Paul's restriction. Paul's right and Paul's restriction. As he comes to verse 15, he makes a transition in his argumentation. And now he's going to turn around and he's going to explain why he chose to abstain from this right. His there, this is his therefore. So, verses 1 through 14, he's proving that he has this right. Verse 15 is his therefore. And his therefore is not, therefore, you need to give me a raise. Uh, therefore, you need to increase your budget for the pastor's salary. No, his therefore is, therefore, look at what I am foregoing. Look at what I am refraining from, abstaining from, so that the gospel could go forth with greater power that I could be a better servant. Well, I know that the previous sermon in this series was rather taxing with seven points that shockingly weren't even alliterated. And all this week as I was studying out for this week's sermon, I felt so guilty that I did that to you that I have given you an outline today that consists of three points all neatly outlined and alliterated. I want us to consider from this text, verses 15 through 18, Paul's refrain, Paul's reason, and Paul's reward. That's what we see in verses 15 through 18. Don't think, however, that this text is as simple as the outline. In fact, these four verses, verses 15 through 18, contain some phraseology that does not easily carry over from our Greek to our English translations. And I, I was studying this passage out this week, and my mind was really open to some things that I had never seen in this text because it is really worded very difficultly. May God help me to exposit this passage and to deliver to you the labors of my studies as he speaks to us from his word. Beginning in verse 15, I want you to see Paul's refrain. Paul's refrain. Having spent 14 verses exhaustively proving his right to monetary support, Paul begins, verse 15, by telling the Corinthians that he has never received a paycheck from them and he has no plans to do so. Look at what he says But I have used none of these things. The these things refer to the preceding arguments for his rights to be paid as a gospel minister. You remember some of them. His apostolic office in the Old Testament law and the New Covenant presidents and the Corinthian practice and his basic necessities, so on and so forth. Paul said, I have all of these reasons why you should pay me and I'm not availing myself of any of them. Then he says, neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me. So I've not written this to receive a paycheck, nor am I setting myself up in the future to be able to receive a paycheck from you. Paul did not write this chapter uh, to drop any hints. He's not trying to employ some kind of deceitful reverse psychology. You know what I'm talking about. The, The people who moan and groan about how much they work and how little they get paid. Why do they do that? in hopes that someone will have pity on them and pay them some more. And as shameful as it is, there are men in the ministry that do the same things. Well, that's not what Paul is doing here. He's not saying, oh, look at poor pitiful me. I undergo all of this labor and all of these hardships and I don't even receive pay. He's not one in the Corinthians to say, oh, poor Paul, let's raise some funds and give you a salary. That's not what he's trying to do. He says... I've not used any of these arguments, and I've not written this so I can in the future. 
And we know that that's what Paul is doing here because he, he then goes on at the end of verse 15 to make a very emphatic statement. Now our English translation renders it like this. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. This is one of those things I was telling you about that's just very difficult to, to accurately translate. Uh, this communicates what Paul is saying, but when you read this in the original language, he, he, Paul is really doing something that's quite interesting and, and even kind of difficult for us to wrap our minds around. What Paul is doing is this. Uh, he's, he's, he begins by saying, it were better for me to die than dash dot dot dot. He just kind of stops mid-sentence. For it were better for me to die than... And he pauses, and he doesn't finish his sentence. And in the Greek, he doesn't finish his sentence. And then he says, No one will deprive me of my right to boast. It were better for me to die than... Dot, dot, dot. And then he pauses. And he says, No one will deprive me of my right to boast. As if he's kind of mumbling it under his breath. Or as if, if, if he's kind of adding it in as an aside. No one will make my glorying void. To understand verse 15, you need to grasp the intensity with which Paul is speaking. He spent 14 verses making this ironclad argument of a minister's right to receive financial remuneration. And then he comes to verse 15 and he says, But I'm not trying to prove this right so that I can avail myself to it. In fact, I'd rather die. That is serious language. No one is going to take away my right to boast. What is Paul saying here? Is he just too proud to receive their money? If that's the case, that's a really spiteful thing to say. We, we know people that are that spiteful, right? Uh, you know, you got, a, you got a estranged cousin and the cousin's mad at the uncle and the cousin gets in trouble and the uncle says, I'll help you with your bills. And he says, I'd rather die than take your money, right? It's not what Paul's doing. If, if that's what Paul was doing, that would be really petty, <laughs> really prideful. Here's what Paul's saying. Verse 15, Paul is saying, I would rather die than take a dollar from you because I don't want you to have one iota of a reason to take the credit of my ministry away from God and say, look what we did for Paul. That's what he's saying in verse 15. And I, I, I didn't really quite see that before I really dug deep in this text because it's just difficult to carry that over into our English translation. Paul is saying, God is the one who has commissioned me. God is the one who has called me. God is the one who's provided for me. God is the one who has supplied my every need. Everything I do in the ministry is because of him. I glory in the God of heaven, and I'd rather die than for you Corinthians to take away that boast from me. Over the last couple of years, we've seen God do some marvelous things here at Christ Fellowship. We've seen God save sinners. We've baptized converts. We've added them to the church. We've gone out and we've preached the gospel publicly. And God has used that to bring people to this church. But you know what? I'd rather this church die than for any of us to say, I put a check in that box over there. Look what we did. I showed up to church on Sunday. Look what we did. 
The minute we say such blasphemies, we rob God of a glory that belongs to him alone. So Paul said, if, if I'm going to be the vessel for you taking God's glory, I'd rather just die. That's why he uses such a shocking expression. See, it wouldn't have been unreasonable or unjust for Paul to receive payment from the Corinthians. There was nothing wrong with that. It was a liberty that he had. But Paul abstains from using this right so that God receives optimal glory. This is Paul's refrain. But before we move on to his reason, I want to ask you a very pointed question. What rights, what Christian liberties are you refraining from in your life so that God is most glorified? I'm not asking you about what sins are you fighting to not commit so that God is most glorified. But what things in your life that you have the right to do, that you have the liberty to do, but yet you are refraining from them because you realize that by refraining from them, God is most glorified. Now, I could run through a list of rights that you could consider foregoing. I I could bring out a punch list and say, well, maybe you should consider this, consider this, consider this. But to do so would really be to venture into legalism. I don't know your heart. I'm not your Holy Spirit. And I can't tell you what things you should relinquish for the glory of God. I have no right to tell you to relinquish your rights. I could tell you the liberties that God has led me to abstain from, but the things that I am convicted of may be the things that you do for His glory. And the things that you enjoy may be things that I refrain from. We're not talking about sins here, we're talking about liberties. Therefore, what we enjoy and what we refrain from will depend on how the Spirit of God leads us to live in a way that most glorifies God. So no, I'm not going to give you suggestions, but I will say, search your own heart. And ask the Lord to identify those liberties that you should limit in your own life. Let us follow the example of Paul, who refrained from his liberties for the sake of the gospel and the cause of God's Glory. This is Paul's refrain. Secondly, I want us to consider Paul's reason. Verse 16. Paul's reason. Well, we know the ultimate reason for his refrain. His ultimate reason is, of course, the glory of God. But practically speaking, how does Paul's refusal to receive a paycheck from the Corinthians translate into his boasting in the Lord? Well, he explains that for us in verses 16 through 17. Notice Verse 16, he says, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. Preaching itself is not Paul's ground for boasting. He has no right to glory in the fact that he preaches the gospel. Why is that? Verse 16, For necessity is laid upon me. Paul understands that God is the one who sovereignly called him and commissioned him to serve in the ministry. Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And he identified Paul as a chosen instrument to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles, to the kings, to the people of Israel. This phrase here, a necessity is laid upon me, it carries the idea of serving as a slave. Paul says, I was pressed into the gospel ministry. I am a slave to Christ. He identifies himself that way, does he not, in many of his epistles. 
He didn't have a choice in the matter. He was under a holy compulsion to serve God and to make Christ known. Paul's calling to preach the gospel was not a Christian liberty that he was free to partake in or abstain from. It's something he must do. Therefore, he has no room to glory. Luke 17, verse 10, what does it say? So likewise you, when you have done all those things, which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. You cannot glory in a duty. We glory in the liberties that we have the freedom to either choose to partake in or choose to abstain from, but Paul didn't have that choice when he came to preaching the gospel. So he says, for though I preach the gospel, I don't have anything to glory in. It's necessary for me to preach the gospel. Necessity is laid upon me. Let me say to you, this must be the conviction of every man who claims to be called into gospel ministry. One of the worst curses that could ever afflict a church is to have a man occupying the pulpit who is never truly called of God. But for a man truly called to preach, he doesn't boast in his ministry because for him, there's simply nothing else he could do. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 16. Again, this is, this is jam-packed with some very emphatic statements. He says, Woe is unto me, yea, woe is unto me, if I preach not the gospel. This is not a man who entered the ministry because he wanted a cushy desk job. This is not a man who entered the ministry because when he was growing up, his, his dad said, you know, son, it'd be really great if you were a preacher. And his mom said, oh, that would just fill my heart with joy. And so grandpa paid for him to go to Bible college. No, this is a man. This is a man who has the prophet Jeremiah had the word of God shut up in his bones. He can't not preach. He, he doesn't have that option. He's called of God to proclaim the truth of his word. This word, woe, is a word of judgment. It's a word of condemnation. Paul is saying, may God damn me if I don't preach the gospel. Preaching the gospel wasn't Paul's 9 to 5 job. It was his identity. Because the preaching of the gospel was laid on him as a necessity, Paul couldn't glory in merely carrying out his duties. Now at this point, some of you may be tempted to think, that this doesn't apply to you because you're not called of God to preach. I know half of you aren't called of God to to preach because you're not men. And while it may be true that you aren't called to formal gospel ministry, you're not called to pastor a church somewhere, Christians are called, all Christians, men and women, are called to proclaim the gospel in two ways. Number one through personally sharing the gospel and living it out before unbelievers, all of you are called to do that. And secondly, by supporting the ministry of a local church and pastors and elders and missionaries who are called to formal ministry. Witnessing to others is not something for the super spiritual Christians. It is a basic duty that God expects of you, and if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you are to evangelize. And we don't boast in our evangelism because sharing Jesus with others should be as natural and necessary to us as breathing air. 
We don't come in here on Sunday and say, guess what I did this week? I, I, I went to a restaurant and gave a tract to the waitress and shared the gospel with the hostess and look at me, look at me. No, that, that's what we're expected to do. To go into all the world and share the gospel with every creature. And while we're at it, financially contributing to the ministry of the church is not for the super spiritual Christians either. Necessity is laid upon us. You don't do a little dance when you put something in the tithe box. Because financial giving is simply expected of all Christians. Amen. Are there people that seem to be particularly gifted in evangelism and witnessing? Absolutely. Are there people that are particularly given a generous giving spirit? Absolutely. But as we talked about yesterday in the men's book and breakfast, talking about the discipline of prayer, though there are people that are especially given a spirit of prayer, that doesn't give you an excuse to be prayerless. And if you don't have a giving spirit, you're neglecting one of the most basic Christian duties. Let me say it to you this way. You have not climbed the first rung of biblical Christianity if you're not a giver, if you're not a witness for Christ. And if you're looking for a round of applause because you read your Bible this morning, or if you're looking for a pat on the back because you managed to make it to church, you're not going to find it from the Apostle Paul. No, Paul says, there's no room for me to, to glory. This is my responsibility. Woe is unto me if I don't do these things. He gives further clarification in verse 17. Notice what he says. Because he doesn't want to be misunderstood. Paul is not trying to communicate uh, that he somehow is joyless or miserable in the Christian life. And he just does everything out of a sense of duty. Notice what he says in verse 17. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. If preaching the gospel was optional for Paul, and he could choose to preach or not to preach, and he chose to preach, then perhaps his glory could be in the fact that he was volunteering for the Lord. If he could choose to preach, and choose not to preach, and he chose to preach, then he has something to glory in. But he's not a volunteer. He's a slave. And slaves don't glory in the work they do for their master. It's their duty as slaves. So he says, But if against my will... A dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. This is another place in our text where translating the intent of what Paul says here is just difficult to do. When Paul speaks of doing something willingly versus unwillingly, or as he puts it, willingly and against his will, he's not referring to service done gladly versus service done reluctantly, but rather service that is optional versus service that is obligatory. That's the difference here. When we, when we hear the term in 2022, unwilling, we think of desire. We think of doing something against your will. You're being forced to do something you don't want to do. That's not what Paul's saying. No, what Paul is saying is that I didn't have a choice in the matter. God gave me this, this ministry. God commissioned me with these things. But nowhere in this text is Paul trying to communicate that he somehow doesn't receive joy from his service. 
in the gospel ministry. In fact, he's communicating the very opposite of that. Remember, the central truth that Paul is unveiling is that the reward for Christian service is found in the service itself. The reward for service is found in the service itself. Not in boasting in ourselves for what we do, but glorying in the God who allows us the privilege of serving Him, unprofitable and undeserving as we are. When Paul says he preaches against his will, he does not mean that he's forced to do something he doesn't want to do. Rather, he is doing something that he can't not do. He can't help himself. He has to preach. He has to preach because he loves to preach, and he loves to preach because he loves the God who grants him the privilege of preaching. And when you do something you love for someone you love, because you love doing it, you don't brag about what you've done. You glory in the privilege of being able to do it. Men, when you take your wife out because you love her, and you want to spend time with her, and you can't help yourself but to take her out, you don't go to work the next day and brag about what a great husband you are. In fact, you don't even look at it as some really wonderful deed that you did. You look at it as, that's just what I do as a loving husband. And you thank God that He allows you to spend time with the woman that you love. That's what Paul is trying to communicate to us here. He's not walking around with his chest puffed out saying, look at me, I'm the Apostle Paul. Look at all the preaching and the ministry that I'm doing. Let me glory in that. No, Paul is saying, I preach because I love to preach and I'm thankful that God gives me the privilege of preaching. That's how Paul viewed his service as a Christian. That's how you need to view yours. He says, a dispensation of the gospel was committed unto me. That's difficult language. Really, literally, it just translated, I am entrusted with an administration, with a stewardship. A stewardship of the gospel has been given to me. Paul didn't view his call to the ministry as a travailing chore. He saw it as a glorious opportunity that he was entrusted with. He saw his call to preach as God giving him a gift to then give to others. And he's given all of you that gift. He has entrusted each one of you with the truths of the gospel. He's given you the stewardship. And you are the ones that he is allowing and giving the privilege of going into the world and sharing that with others. You have the privilege of sharing the message of salvation. You have the privilege of sharing the message of joy. What a gift it is in this world that we live in, this miserable world of death and and pain, and suffering. You, Christian, have the only message of hope. God has entrusted you with this message. Don't keep it to yourself. And when you share it, don't brag about it. It's your duty. It's your privilege. It's an opportunity. It's not, look what I'm doing for God. It's, look what God has allowed me to do. Oh, that God would give us this outlook when you, when you really get a hold of this, you say, what are my rights? What are my Christian liberties? Forget my rights. I want to do whatever causes me to best serve God. And if that means forsaking my liberty, so be it. Because I enjoy God more than I enjoy my liberties. That's what Paul is driving at in chapter 9. His message is not, give up your liberty so you can be miserable. 
Or his message is gladly forsake your liberties. Let them go because nothing would bring you more joy than to forego your rights in order to better serve Jesus Christ. When this perspective takes hold on your heart, you will refrain from your rights because the joy you get from serving God far surpasses the joy you get from indulging in liberty. That's why Paul says, keep your money. I don't want your money. I don't need your money. I'm not here for your money and your paycheck. Not if it's going to interfere with my service to God. Not if it's going to interfere with the glory He receives. Keep your money. My reward, my reward is in my service which brings glory to the God that I love, not in your money. That's Christianity. That's the mind of Christ. That we should have such a heart for His glory that nothing else, no other gift, no other liberty or enjoyment or right that we have could ever outweigh privilege of serving the privilege of bring, being a vessel to bring glory to God and thirdly in verse 18 I want you to see Paul's reward Paul's reward I've touched on it but I want us to consider it directly because Paul ends verse 18 and he says what is my reward then well it's not simply preaching That's not his reward. Not by virtue of the fact that he does it. It's merely his duty. It's not the money he receives from the Corinthians. He receives no money from them. He refuses their money, in fact. What is it then? What's in it for Paul? What is his reward? Notice, fairly that. When I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Paul's reward is not the money he receives from his ministry. His reward is being used of God for the furtherance of the gospel and that not at the expense of the church that he's serving. Paul is saying, I'm glorying in the fact that I'm able to be here and to minister here and to labor amongst you and I don't even rely on your money to do so. God just provides for my needs and allows me to keep serving Him. He preached the gospel free of charge. The gospel free of charge. Though he had the right to financial support, God so providentially provided for him that he didn't have to avail himself of it. And for that, for that, Paul was not begrudging. Paul was not saying, you know, I'm willing to preach without a paycheck, but if it sure would be nice if this church could do a little bit for me. Paul rejoiced that he was able to labor in the ministry. And that ministry was free of charge to the Corinthians. This is something really important for us to notice. At times when we talk about our Christian liberty, and we talk about refraining from them, we talk about it as if it's a sacrifice. And it is in in some ways. But I want you to see that Paul did not consider abstaining from his Christian liberty as some begrudging sacrifice, but rather an honor that was bestowed upon him. He was eager to abstain for the glory of God. See, other ministers did not have the ability to abstain from this right. Other ministers, other apostles, relied on the support of the church that they were at. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Paul was happy. 
Paul rejoiced in the fact that somehow, through the providence of God, he was able to serve the Corinthian church and not rely on their money to do so. That's important for us to see because here's how we often view giving up our liberties. Well, I really don't want to give this up, but I reckon I will if I have to. That's how we talk about our liberties. Well, I know that really this, this should be what I give up, and I know that I should cut this out of my life, and I know I should abstain. I don't want to offend my brother or sister. I don't want to hinder the, the furtherance of the gospel, but in my heart, I really wish I could keep partaking in this. Paul, on the other hand, has the attitude of, I will gladly forgo my rights. I'll gladly give them up. Because it's an even greater honor for me to give something up for the glory of God, the furtherance of the gospel, and the good of the church. And I'd rather have that honor than I would the liberty itself. Do you think that way? Do you think that way about, the way, about spending your time? When you look at the calendar and you see, oh, evangelistic outreach is this Thursday. Well, if I do that, I'm going to have to cut out the Netflix marathon that I had planned for Thursday. And I know that I'm a member of the... I know I should be there at 3 o'clock. I know I should. But really, I don't want to be there. I just, I'm going because it's my duty to go and I know that's the right thing to do. But really, I'd rather indulge. Well, I know that we as Christians, we're commanded to give money and we're commanded to tithe. And I know that we're... But really, I'd, I'd really rather keep that for myself. But I'm going to do it because it's my duty how we often think about our duties. And what Paul is trying to get you to see here, what he's trying to ingrain into your heart, is that you have the privilege of serving. You have the privilege of giving. You have the privilege of, of worshiping him and living out the Christian life. And Paul ends verse 18 by reminding us of his main objective in chapter 19, which is, to use himself as an example of someone who forgoes their liberty. He preaches the gospel without charge. The King James says that I abuse not my power in the gospel. But it isn't really the abuse of his rights that he's concerned with. He's demonstrating to the Corinthians that he doesn't make full use of them. I'm preaching the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights. For Paul, it wasn't about... How many Christian liberties can I indulge in? I have the liberty to do this and this and this and this, and I'm going to enjoy all of them. Live it up. Though for Paul, it was how, how many rights can I forego? How many indulgences can I abstain from so that God can receive more glory? He, he was a man that had eternity stamped upon his eyeballs. And that, that's what it is. That's what keeps us from giving up our rights because we want the immediate gratification and the immediate pleasure that comes from indulging. And again, I'm not talking about sinful things. I'm talking about things that you have the right to do. And we want to enjoy our rights. But for Paul, he knew that the joy he would receive from being a greater servant to God outweighed the right that he had to indulge in something pleasurable as a Christian. 
He doesn't avail himself to the full extent of his rights, which is exactly what he exhorted the Corinthians to do in chapter 8. Well, let me share with you a few concluding thoughts as we come to the end of this text. Number one, there is one kind of boasting that grace obliterates, and there is another kind of boasting that grace elicits. There's one kind of boasting that grace does not allow, and that is a boasting in the things that you do by virtue of the fact that you do them. We don't boast in ourselves. But what does Paul say in the New Testament? If any man glories, if any man boasts, let him boast in Christ. So when Paul says in verse 15, I'd rather die. (laughs) No man's going to take my boasting from me. Well, he wasn't talking about a boasting in something that he was accomplishing or something that he was doing, but he was referring to a boast in the Lord who called him into the ministry, who equipped him, who supplied his needs, who cared for him. Paul gloried in the sovereignty and goodness of God, which called him and commissioned him so that he could preach the gospel free of charge. When, when, when Paul preached for the Corinthians, and when they said, how are you doing, Paul? Uh, are your needs being met? Do you need us to take up an offering for you? Paul boasted in the fact that he could say, I'm fine. I've got all that I need. And I glory in God for that. We don't boast at this church by what we put in that offering box. But I tell you what we do boast in every business meeting when we go over the financial report and we see how God's provided for us and we say, glory to God. I don't know how you did this, Lord, but you did it. Paul didn't receive money from the Corinthians because he didn't want to lose that boast. We know what kind of church this is. We know the issues they have with pride. We know the issues that they have with selfishness and self-exaltation and how they are puffed up, right? We know that about them. Sometimes I feel like I know these people really well. We spent so much time with them. God forbid that they should say, Paul only does what he does because our money supports him. So Paul said, keep your money so that God keeps his glory. Secondly, Paul exemplifies not only what it looks like to refrain from Christian liberties, but also what it looks like to have the call of God upon your life. Those who are truly called of God will find their greatest satisfaction in fulfilling their calling, not in a paycheck they may or may not receive along the way. There is perhaps no calling about which this is more true than the call of God to preach the gospel. Those whom God calls as His holy ministers have been entrusted with a divine stewardship to herald the message of Christ. And it isn't optional, and it isn't a hobby that they've picked up on the side. And whether they're paid or whether they're not, they will have this burning desire to preach the gospel of God's grace. Spurgeon said about this text, verses 15 through 18, he says, What is that necessity that is laid upon us? First, A very great part of that necessity springs from the call itself. If a man be truly called of God to minister, I will defy him to withhold himself from it. A man who has really within him the inspiration of the Holy Ghost calling him to preach cannot help it. He must preach as fire within his bones. So will that influence be until it blazes forth. Friends may check him. 
Foes may criticize him. Despisers sneer at him. The man is indomitable. He must preach if he has the call of heaven. All earth might forsake him, but he would preach to the barren mountaintops. If he has the call of heaven, if he has no congregation, he would preach to the rippling waterfalls and let the brooks hear his voice. He could not be silent. Paul exhibits that call. If you can, pay the man. Take care of him. But that's not why he's doing it. No, he's doing it because he receives greatest joy in fulfilling the call that God has placed upon his life. For those of you not called to preach, you have a call of God placed upon your life. Whatever it may be, wherever God is calling you, whatever he's calling you to do. For some of you, it might be to be a prayer warrior and an intercessor at this church. For some of you, it might be different ministries of mercy and necessity that God opens the door for you to do. Whatever that calling is, you do it. And you find your joy in doing it. Not the applause of men, not the admiration of other Christians, and not financial gain. Thirdly, in abstaining from his right to financial remuneration, Paul is highlighting an exception, not laying down a pattern. I think it's important for us to understand that. If Paul was laying down a pattern, it really wouldn't be anything special. But he's not laying down a pattern. In fact, he's the exception. The pattern, actually verse 14 calls it the ordinance of Christ. The pattern is for a pastor to serve the church and the church to take care of that pastor. That's the pattern. And though Paul forwent this right, he only forwent it really with the Corinthians because he did receive financial support from other churches. If you were to read this, and I know of churches, I think, I think it's error, who will use Paul as an example to prove a pattern. And they will say, look at Paul. This is why we believe that ministers should not receive any financial support. But the fact of the matter is, Paul didn't even live by that pattern. He received support from other churches. In fact, while he was ministering amongst the rich, fat Corinthians, you know who paid his bills? You know who he received support from? The poor Macedonians. Why? Because it's not about receiving a paycheck versus not receiving a paycheck. It's about doing what most glorifies God in each instance. So on one hand, Paul exemplifies a bivocational pastor, and certainly any man called to preach is willing to serve whether he's supported or not. But on the other hand, Paul demonstrates the biblical means to relieve bivocational pastors. When a church understands that God does not need their money, and that God is the one who receives all glory from the work he does through his ministers, but when that church wants to participate in what God is doing and desires to give financially, then by all means, receive their support. We don't support mission work so that more people will get saved in the long run. No, God's going to save his people. We support mission work because we want to be part of what God's doing. But if there's a possibility that the church might be using their giving as an opportunity to steal glory that belongs to God alone, we don't want that money. We don't want that money. We want God to get all the glory. Let me leave you with a very simple principle about your Christian liberties to sum all of this up. If you didn't get anything, get this. Use your Christian liberties 
when they glorify God, abstain from them when they don't. That's simple enough. If you can indulge in a Christian liberty and participate in a Christian liberty and you can do it unto the glory of God, then do it. But when refraining would bring more glory to God, do that. May God help us to understand his word, apply it to our lives, and may our joy be full as he glorifies himself in us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us today as we navigate a text that provides some difficulties for us. But Lord, we we see you speaking so clear to us through this passage. We ask you to give us the grace. Give us the discernment, Lord, by your spirit. Point out to us those areas of our lives where we should be cutting back, those areas of our lives where we should be making some changes so that you could receive more glory through the way that we live, the way that we minister. Father, help us to receive our full joy, our full satisfaction, not in temporal earthly rewards for what we do, but in the joy that it is to serve you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you, unprofitable and undeserving as we are, that you are pleased to use us. Help us, Lord, to serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.